0: 5 Lakewood Drive in Cranberry States is about 8 miles from 73 Shadeland Drive. Just to give you an idea of the distance in Greenfield, Indiana, between the Snedeker home, where Laura Morris went missing, and the home of the Lindner family. On the morning of September 17, 1981, nine days after Tony Lambert was last seen in New Orleans, the plant foreman at Indiana Aircraft Hardware Company in Indianapolis made his usual 6 a.m. wake-up call to Gene Lindner, the president of the company. The phone rang for about three minutes until finally, eight-year-old Valerie answered. Al, come over quick. Something's wrong with Daddy, she told him. Sheriff's deputies arrived at the residence at just after 6.15. Gene Lindner had been badly beaten and his throat had been cut. While he lay in bed, law enforcement has never associated Gene Lindner's murder to that of Steve Snedeker or the death of his daughter. But I think it's important to dig a little bit deeper into that, given the time frame. Also, there are issues around the sale and/or transport of drugs in both stories, which we'll get into in a bit. And then there's John Munden's relationship with the Lindner family, which is also important to explore. He would later go on to marry Nieves Lindner, Jean's Cuban-born wife. Some of Nieves' family members landed in the States from Cuba, having joined the wave of outcasts who fled to the U.S. as part of what was known as the Freedom Flotilla, hundreds of thousands of refugees packed like sardines in makeshift boats, escaping Castro's revolution and seeking safe harbor in a country whose most familiar symbol made such a promise. A famous sonnet was written by Emma Lazarus for a fundraiser auction to raise money for the pedestal that the Statue of Liberty sits upon. And in that sonnet was the promise, which most of us only know by one line. Not like that brazen giant of Greek fame, with conquering limbs astride from land to land, here at our sea-washed sunset gates shall stand a mighty woman with a torch, whose flame is the imprisoned lightning, and her name mother of exiles from her beacon hand glows worldwide welcome her mild eyes command the air-bridged harbor that twin cities frame keep ancient lands your storied pomp cries she with silent lips give me your tired your poor your huddled masses yearning to breathe free the wretched refuse of your teeming shore send these the homeless tempest tossed to me I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Nieves and Jean had brought several of her relatives from Cuba in the year leading up to his murder, some of whom had stayed in the Lindner home at certain points. Let's step back in time for a minute, though, and talk about their early life together. In the 1960s, Jean worked as a salesman dealing in parts used in the airline industry. Nieves worked at a grocery store in Indianapolis. The two met at a bar and they hit it off. They were both married at the time, though, so they divorced and married each other in January of 1965. In the late 70s, Gene started his own company, Indiana Aircraft Hardware Company, and essentially became competition to the company that he used to work for. Within the aircraft business, government contracts are a large source of income, and he would end up incorporating his company with Nieves as a 51% stockholder, in order to benefit from the minority owner, qualifying it as a minority business. Gene Lindner was a businessman, and he knew a lot of people. They had annual hog roasts at their house with 200-plus people, and they hosted neighborhood parties, which always garnered a large crowd. Hosting other influential businessmen from the area was not uncommon in the Lindner home. But there are indications that all was not well within the home, including divorce filings as far back as 1976. An in-depth article in the Indianapolis Star, dated July 3rd, 1988, quoted one co-worker saying, Nieves said she owned 51% of the business and suggested that he better tow the line. They got to fighting and I got out. They would fight like cats and dogs, another former friend and business acquaintance said. Hancock County Sheriff Nick Gulling told reporters that John Munden, quote, entered their lives during one of the suicide attempts when he was sent to the home to talk Gene Lindner out of killing himself. Sheriff Gulling said that the two later became good friends, with Lindner later agreeing to help and finance Munden if he chose to run for sheriff. This same article tells another story about how, in the early 1980s, Nieves persuaded Gene to hire 14 Cubans, but he ended up firing them because he said that they wouldn't work. According to his former lawyer, James A. Buck, Nieves threatened to blow the whistle on Jean if he didn't hire them back. Buck said that the threat was that she would tell authorities that her controlling interest in the minority ownership was in name only. The article goes on to describe Jean Lindner being scared that the Cubans might retaliate against him. Jean Lindner moved out of the Cranberry Estates home and filed for divorce on August 5, 1981. The petition reads as follows. Due to the marital strife, said businessmen can no longer function in an orderly fashion if Nieves Lindner is allowed to come about said place of business. Judge Richard Milan issued a restraining order barring Nieves from their business. The next day, she filed for divorce and asked the court to bar Lindner from their home which it did. Two days before Laura Morris went missing, Jean Lindner's complaint was served to Nieves Lindner by none other than Hancock County Sheriff's Deputy John Munden. In the two weeks to follow, the Lindners came to an agreement regarding their home. Nieves would stay there, and Jean would continue the business with Nievis handling the clerical aspect. They agreed to consult each other before making any business decisions and basically stay out of each other's way. Jean agreed to pay the mortgage on the home, and they would both be paid 20000 a year by the business. The agreement said, quote, Each party shall be restrained from bothering, molesting, threatening, or in any way interfering with the other, and each party shall be restrained from selling, transferring, or in any way disposing of any property owned by the parties. Well, that certainly makes it sound like their days at the office are going to be a goddamn delight, doesn't it? It would only be a couple weeks after this agreement was signed that Nieves would ask Jean to come back and stay at the Cranberry Estates' home with their children while she went to Cuba for a visit. He moved back in on September 12th. Five days later, 47-year-old Jean Lindner would be murdered in their bed. If I were to guess, it's the timing of all that that would be wildly suspicious to police. When I spoke with sources close to the family, they wanted to address the issue of Nieves being out of town when the homicide occurred, since that seemed to be something that was focused on in the media. I was told this. When you defect from a communist country, you don't just go back for a visit. You go on a waiting list. And Nieves was on that list since 1962. When her number came up, she had to go. She hadn't seen her parents and other family for years. Nievis didn't even learn that both of her parents had passed away until she arrived in Cuba on that visit. John Munden was one of the deputies initially assigned to the Lindner homicide case, and according to the same article, he interviewed many of Jean's friends and acquaintances, many of which immediately pointed to Nievis and said, yeah, you ought to check her out on this. According to Hancock County Sheriff Nick Gulling, A couple days after Nieves got back from Cuba, she paid off-duty deputies to guard her home. No word on whether John Munden was one of these deputies, and I don't think he was because he was a bit busy with the Laura Moores homicide case, but can we just stop here for a minute and ponder how this is now the second time during this podcast that I have told you about how people close to a murder investigation are handing cash over to Hancock County Sheriff's Department, and it's apparently being accepted, with the gusto that I generally reserve for shoving a glazed donut into my big old sass hole. How is this not raising any red flags at all with local journalists or activists or, frankly, anyone? I kind of feel like I'm in the middle of a Fellini movie. Weird shit is happening all around me, but nobody's reacting to any of it. John had been
1: up to their home... Uh, or the department had let me put it that way the department has and I'm assuming maybe him on more than one occasion um, because of I don't know, domestic situations or this or that or the other um, my understanding was never on a social basis but always on a uh, like a domestic situation but they, had, they, they were not total strangers to the sheriff's department mm-hmm. and then uh, when Gene died, John was the initial investigator on the case, as I recall. No, no, he was not. Malcolm, Malcolm Grass, the sheriff, was, I think, the lead investigator on the case and responded up there to that. And at some point, uh, at some point, they in, the department involved John in that investigation. Uh, somewhere... During the next ensuing, I, I don't know exactly, probably a couple of years, um, they, I guess he and, and uh, of course, they eventually did solve that crime.
0: Tell me what uh, it was, because said they didn't. How did they, who did they attribute it to? Oh, no,
1: no, 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 no. Two of Nevis's brothers.
0: Well, I knew I, there was arrest, drug it, arrest. I
1: think they both went to jail for it
0: not for this homicide they went to jail for drug well one of her brothers died in jail for um, well, for maybe, the drug maybe, trafficking
1: maybe maybe so but i know <laughs> i know that that uh, there was it, let's put it this way it was considered it was considered solved.
0: So they they thought that I mean, it, definitely the brother was involved with Nieves in the drug trafficking. Both of them went yeah. to jail for that. So they did yeah. believe that they were also responsible for Jean's well. Death. They, they
1: they never were able they never were able to connect it to Nieves, but certainly to her brother. Uh, and they're convinced that uh, because uh, as and I'm trying I'm trying to remember the details. There was something about I mean, his throat was cut and this or that, but there were a couple of things that seemed, as I recall, uh, that the cops indicated were sort of typical methods of operation in the drug world.
0: Yeah, the newspaper articles did say blunt force trauma and then the, sta- the, the thro- throat cut. So, yeah. they, I do and, remember seeing both. The,
1: the two kids were, were home at the time. Yeah,
0: awful, just awful.
1: Uh... And I don't think there was any, as I recall, there uh, there was no sign of forced entry. No, now, maybe I'm wrong about that.
0: But, right, you're, right. you're
1: um, right. So I mean, I, I don't think uh, it, it was considered closed. They just felt like no, it you know her brother or brothers were involved in that,
2: All and right.
1: were never able really to pin it on um, that Navis Nevis necessarily had anything to do with it, mm-hmm. but. Even though she was involved with her brother in the in the drug deal and the drug trade, a bit.
0: Do they uh, did they believe that there was drug trade going on before Jean Lindner died?
1: Yeah, well, I don't think they know. I I, I don't think they knew mm. whether there
0: was or not. Sheriff Malcolm Grass said, "Quote: Munden and other deputies are still working on the case, running down leads and eliminating suspects. So it appears that." It, at least three weeks in, Munden was now working on two homicide cases. That earlier Indianapolis Star article that I quoted from July 3rd, 1988, it also included this quote by former Hancock County prosecutor Larry Gossett. There was never enough evidence to charge anybody in the case. There was not even anything to go fishing with. It's what would come later in 1988 that would eventually cause John Munden to step down from his position with the Hancock County Sheriff's Department. An Indianapolis Star article dated June 23, 88, written by R. Joseph Del Arden and George McLaren, said this, The estranged wife of Hancock County's chief deputy sheriff and her brother were ordered held without bond Wednesday after police confiscated $62,500 and more than a pound of cocaine in a raid on her exclusive suburban Greenfield home. Nieves Lindner-Munden, 49, wife of Chief Deputy John Munden and her brother, Armando Martinez of Miami, were arrested on federal charges of conspiracy and intent to distribute cocaine and carrying a firearm while trafficking in drugs. The raid Tuesday night resulted in the largest cocaine seizure in Hancock County history, and it occurred at the site of one of the county's most notorious unsolved homicides, according to Hancock County Sheriff Nick Gulling. Mrs. Munden's previous husband, Gene Lindner, died in August of 1981 after his throat was cut three times as he slept in the home. Munden, 41, investigated the slaying and later married Mrs. Munden and lived in the house. U.S. Attorney Deborah J. Daniels declined to comment when asked if the cocaine investigation involved John Munden, but Munden was defended by his boss. Captain Munden is a good policeman and I find it difficult to believe he had any knowledge of that activity. Gulling said he did not know the Combined Federal and State Anti-Drug Task Force was conducting an investigation in Hancock County until raiders called him just before the raid started. The searchers included representatives of the Federal DEA, the Metropolitan Task Force, Indiana State Police, the Henry County Area Drug Task Force, and the Indiana Department of Conservation. Mundin was called to the scene of the raid Tuesday evening by his estranged wife's children. The chief deputy denied knowing of any illegal activities in the house. Munden, a sheriff's deputy since 1977, was not charged in connection with the case and is not under departmental investigation, Galling said. The arrests were triggered by a six-month state and federal drug probe that began when informants say they purchased cocaine from a Cuban female, quote, who had some kind of relationship with a law enforcement officer. Records say police used unidentified undercover informants to make several drug purchases from the Munden home in the past five months, which the suspect reportedly kept track of on a home computer. Gulling said Munden had not been living in the home for several months because his wife filed for divorce March 9th. The marriage, which lasted less than two years, was the second for the couple. Despite the divorce filing, Munden was a silent spectator during the federal court hearing, watching from the spectator section as deputy US marshals handcuffed his wife and brother-in-law and led them from the courtroom. Since the death of her first husband, she has operated Indiana Aircraft, a supplier of aircraft equipment out of her home. Neighbors said they had not suspected illegal activity at the house, the only home at the end of a cul-de-sac on a secluded tree-lined lot. One neighbor said Mrs. Munden was a friendly, outgoing woman who had won a countywide competition last winter for best decorated Christmas home. Another neighbor said he didn't suspect John Munden as being involved in illegal drug activities. I'd be totally shocked. He's one of the good guys, a Captain America type. Nieves, her brother Armando, and a 21 year old named Kevin Beasley were indicted on multiple charges related to a drug operation being run from that Cranberry State's home, including using a firearm in these dealings that had been modified into a fully automatic machine gun type weapon. Larry Furness, the Indiana State Police Superintendent, said John Munden passed an FBI polygraph about whether he took part in the drug dealing, but it was inconclusive regarding questions around whether he was aware of the drug activity before and after he separated from his wife. Neither John nor Nievis were implicated in the murder of Jean Lindner, her former husband. All of this polygraph information only came out after a 12-week investigation into alleged improprieties around John Munden and the Hancock County Sheriff's Department's involvement in multiple cases, including Jean Lindner, Laura Morris, and the murder-suicide of two Marion County Sheriff's deputies, a case that John Munden also took part in investigating. In that same July, 1988, in-depth Indianapolis Star article, it went on to say that during a federal magistrate's bond hearing for Nievis that same year, quote, Munden said Indiana Aircraft's business shrank under her leadership. He said the business moved out of a warehouse to a location on US-40, west of Greenfield, and then to the Cranberry Estate's home. Munden testified the inventory was kept in the garage, and the business had shrunk to about a fourth of its former size. At that bond hearing, Munden said that by the summer of 1983, he and Nievis were in love and living together. In June of 1983, Munden filed for divorce from his wife of 19 years. Nievis and John lived together for about a year, and then they married. But only a month into marital bliss, Nievis filed for divorce, asking for a court order. To keep John Munden from the Lindner home. Somewhere in there, the passion must have rekindled because on May 23, 1986, they got married again. But they hit another speed bump eight months later when another divorce was imminent. Munden was in, Munden was out, but he ended up staying until late January of 1988. From the stand, John Munden pledged his love for Nievis and said that he didn't want a divorce. He hoped to get back together with her when she was released from prison. As Niavis was handcuffed and led away by deputy U.S. Marshals, John Munden looked at his estranged wife, or ex-wife, hell, I'm not even sure where they were at this point, but Munden whispered to her across the courtroom, I love you. Now let's go over the bullet points. Make sure we are all on the same page. Jean Lindner was killed. Sometime thereafter, John Munden married Jean's widow, Nieves. Sometime after that, Nieves is arrested on drug charges. And sometime after that, there was an investigation into all of that and more. In the summer of 1988, the Marion County prosecutor asked the feds to step in and look at three unsolved homicides. All the cases were originally assigned to John Munden, although some would later be reassigned a letter was sent from the Marion County Prosecutor to U.S. Attorney General Deborah Daniels, which alleged that the investigation, led by the Metro Drug Task Force, had uncovered new information related to the Lindner murder and the murder-suicide of two former Marion County deputy sheriffs in Hancock County. There was clearly a conflict of interest in having Hancock County investigate their own investigations, but the feds were not inclined to step in. So the Indiana State Police were given the unfortunate task of unspooling the whole mess to see if there was any there there. This new information that the Marion County prosecutor cited was never actually revealed, but it was his office that supervised the task force that developed the case against Nieves Munden. Multiple sources in Hancock and Marion counties, who declined to be identified for the Indianapolis Star article, raised questions about Munden since his wife's arrest. One of the things that they pointed to was John Munden's alleged pledge to destroy a videotape that was taken into custody during the investigation into the deaths of the murder-suicide victim cops. This tape had been found during a search of that crime scene, and it allegedly showed people engaged in sex acts, specifically at least one Hancock County deputy. Some sources alleged that John Munden wanted to destroy the tape to protect the Hancock County Sheriff's Department. So, yeah, John Munden's bacon was firmly planted in the skillet, and grease was a-poppin' all around him. I think it's fair to say that by July 4th of 1988, the mood wasn't all hot dogs and wedges of juicy watermelon at Hancock County Sheriff's Department. Indianapolis Star headlines on July 3rd read as follows, Inquiry reveals Hancock County Sheriff's Department secret sex tapes. Sex Videos at Center of Storm Involving Homicide and Credibility. The first paragraph reads as follows. The arrest of Nieves Lindner-Munden on drug charges inadvertently prompted disclosure of one of the most closely held secrets in the Hancock County Sheriff's Department. Two of its deputies appear in sexually explicit homemade videotapes, now simply called THE TAPES. And THE TAPES was in all caps. There is not a cop in the universe that wants their name associated with a headline like that, and I can only imagine that John Munden was slapping on a bit more deodorant and a broader smile every morning as he headed out the door dodging eager journalists in an effort to stave off the questions and unseemly body odors associated with being in the hottest of hot seats. This one had drugs, sex, and murder, a holy trinity, probably had newsrooms collectively drooling in anticipation. Hell, you could cover that one six ways from Sunday. Put a reporter on every angle. Rumors flew regarding who was and was not captured in the video and how it was all related to the drug takedown of Nevis Munden, as well as the murder-suicide of Marion County Sheriff's deputies Phil Moore and Thomas Winkle. When reporters started asking specifically for names of individuals depicted in the video, Hancock County Sheriff Nick Gulling said, quote, they know who they are. This not only affects them, but all members of the department. He said all deputies were catching heat due to the rumors, which he qualified as, quote, a problem with two or three people, which is affecting everyone. Citing concerns for their families, law enforcement declined to identify the deputies, but Gulling told reporters that the pair were known within the department because they stood and identified themselves during a departmental meeting. Oh, to have been a fly on the wall for that one. For perspective, by the way, his department included 21 full-time employees, 7 jail and communications deputies, and 30 reserve deputies, so that's really only about 5% of their staff sexing it up on tape. Gulling made sure to tell reporters that he was still waiting on this alleged new evidence that had started this whole fiasco in the first place. When asked for comment, C. Thomas Cohn, a Greenfield attorney, representing the sheriff's department in civil cases, said, I've seen them. What's on those tapes is being exaggerated, out of proportion. I can't believe it. To be fair, Attorney Cohn, that's what happens when you don't let the bright light of the sun determine these things. Withholding information that the public has a right to know, when you're talking about law enforcement officers, you run the risk of things being taken out of proportion. If it wasn't a big deal, they probably should have released the contents of the tape and taken their chances. Obviously, I'm not suggesting that they should have racked that puppy up on the 530 local news, but a brief description of what it included was probably in order. And yes, I absolutely do believe cops have a right to privacy, but in this case, at least one deputy was on duty when the videotaping occurred. The incidents depicted on the tape were said to have occurred years earlier, in 1979 or 1980, and a specific date couldn't be determined, but a deputy's police radio could be heard bleeding out in the background, providing at least some clue about the time frame involved. This whole situation got so out of control there were two separate court actions in two separate counties related to the destruction of the tapes that dare not speak its name. One of Deputy Moore's heirs wanted those tapes, but they were ordered by a judge to be held as possible evidence safe from tampering or destruction until the investigations were completed, at which time, the family's attorney expected to ask the judge to order the tapes and photos, oh yes, there were photos, to be destroyed. By October of that year, the 12-week probe came to a slow, grinding halt, and the findings were rather disappointing, if you're the kind of person who prefers that massive crash of wave after a steadily built crescendo. The three-month investigation revealed no criminal wrongdoing or inappropriate handling by members of the Hancock County Sheriff's Department or the Hancock County Prosecutor's Office. Indiana State Police issued their final report and included in its findings, they did mention that one sheriff's deputy could still face departmental action and qualified this as, quote, matters that may be considered as internal conduct problems that would be turned over to the appropriate local authorities. The report said that the Lindner and Morris cases would be assigned an Indiana State Police investigator who would continue to work on those cases. The Moore-Winkle murder-suicide was confirmed to be a murder-suicide, but the side issue of the videotape was characterized as having been made in the early 1980s, and it depicted deputies Moore and Winkle, plus three women, and at least two Hancock County Sheriff's Department officers in embarrassing situations. One deputy in particular was described as being involved in explicit activities in the video. The tapes themselves were collected at the Moore-Winkle crime scene, and it was determined that they had zero evidentiary value in the investigation of their deaths. At this time, Hancock County Sheriff Nick Gulling wanted to make it perfectly, perfectly clear that John Munden was not one of the officers depicted in the videotape. Regarding those polygraphs that John Munden took that came out inconclusive, determining whether he was aware of his wife's drug-related activities would be purely speculative, Sheriff Gulling said. There may have been some clues that maybe he should have picked up on and he didn't, but it is conclusive that he had no direct knowledge or involvement in the drug operation.
1: As far as any drug connections or mishandling of investigations, I think everybody was cleared
0: Right. Uh,
1: yes. of that. Um, there. Were, I, I knew a couple of, I didn't know it at the time, but I mean, I subsequently, it turned out that, that I knew a couple of the deputies who were involved in the, in the sex tape thing. Uh, and one of them got in, in pretty good trouble I, I because it was determined that he was on duty and in uniform right uh, yeah. when when some of these things were were uh, transpiring and um i can't remember whether they fired him or just suspended him or what but i knew one of those guys not not the murdered guys but no. the guys that the, subsequently from the investigation um
0: but did you ever learn? So I'm I'm curious to know what started all this. This new information, apparently, that came from the multi agency task force um, investigating the drug drug um, trafficking stuff in Hancock County. Did you ever learn what this new invest new information was that made them want to open it in the first place? It it
1: doesn't it doesn't ring a bell that I ever did. Yeah. Um, I mean, could I say a hundred percent that I didn't know at the time? No. But I at sitting here now, I don't recall anything that, that brought that. I know there was you know there was quite a big stink when these two Marion County guys who lived in Hancock county uh, were found dead mm-hmm. um, and I you know, I think there was probably uh, a, well, as you might imagine anytime two police officers are found dead in their house, you
2: yeah, know yeah uh,
1: there's there's gonna be I mean, they're going to come. Investigators are going to crawl, come out of the woodwork to try and solve that. Yeah, Um, I can't. And I don't remember. I can't remember whether the sex tape that we were talking about uh, included any drug usage you know what I mean it
0: didn't say that in the thing and that's why I couldn't put it together it seems like they found the tape by accident when they were right and so but it came part of this whole investigation because obviously oh my god we got two cops there that are dead we've got some cops that are having sex on tape or god knows what then we've got some three unsolved crimes and are they related or are they not because the investigator in all three of them, at least some point, John was in all the investigations sure. at some point, his wife was arrested. That's what spurred yeah. this. She got arrested yeah. and then all this happened.
2: Yeah. Right. No,
1: and and I'm, I'm sure that's probably, you know, how it came about. And they probably just decided, listen, to be prudent, mm-hmm. we're going to check all this shit out. Yeah. You know? uh, we can't afford, we don't want anybody to be able to say that we've looked the other way if something wrongs going on. Yeah. So... We're gonna we're gonna dig into it and double check. Now, it's not a big shock. Um, I think probably fairly important to note. It's not a big shock that John was at some point involved in all those investigations. The sheriff's department only had two detectives.
0: Right. Right.
1: And and by that time, one of them was not really as much a detective as he was a crime scene tech. Um, so really, John was their pri- their primary detective, and uh, we didn't have a lot of uh, a lot of cases, uh, a lot of murder cases. Although we did go through a spate there for a while where we had several, um, but they were, most all were unrelated to one another except for the Lower Morris deaths. Right uh, in a county where at the time. Uh, one homicide a year was was a shocker. Mm-hmm. We probably went through a period where there were four or five in the space of a couple of years, and that was really unusual. Um, so I'm sure it probably drew a lot of attention, but it's no surprise that John would have at some point been involved in all those because, hell, he was the only detective they had for the yeah. most part.
0: And, and like you said, it... it was- as this all played out and what happened with Nieves and the whole drug thing, it, it yeah. makes sense that all of this was investigated, especially, you know, just to make sure that, well, we got three unsolved cases. We got this, we got, we yeah. got all this stuff going on. I understand all of that. My only question out of all of this was, what is this new information that a drug task force comes up with that now it is, then they're opening up an investigation. But even in your reporting, it seems to me that you were basically saying, but nobody's telling us what this new information is. We've never seen it. We don't know it. Did it even exist? Is this a political maneuver? I thought political maneuver and I heard it. I thought...
1: Well, and it very well could be. I mean, it, it very well could be. Now, I will tell you that there were... Which, which kind of, I guess. Now that I think about it, I hadn't really, uh, I guess, hadn't really thought about it before. But, but there were several people, um, even on the department, um, on the sheriff's department there, who refused, just simply refused to believe that that John didn't know what was going on with Nevis. Even
0: see. though he
1: lived living there, you know, they were separated. Um, knowing John. Nobody that knew John would ever have believed that he would ha- would have known or been involved. But there were some guys, probably guys for various political reasons or just I don't like the, the SOB or whatever, just refused to believe. I mean, there I heard more than once, you know, the arguments of, well, you're sure, was hell must not be much of a detective. He couldn't even find the drugs in his own house, you know, and yeah. that, kind of, that kind of stuff. Yeah. But of course, he, you know...
0: I mean you have to admit it if you don't know John Munden, it it looks bad on paper <laughs> yeah I mean yeah. you know I
1: mean it, it kind of it kind of does I, I, I agree but um, you know like I say I, I knew him for I've known him well from 1981 I guess until he passed away last year or earlier this year whenever it was um, and you know, Uh, There were just folks that just simply wouldn't let go of that.
0: Right. Now we come to a point in this part of the story that's murky, in my opinion, and I debated about how to deliver the information to be fair to all parties involved. But it boils down to this. I reached out to the Lindner family, who were initially hesitant to even discuss the case with me. They did not want to participate in the podcast. But they did answer questions... For me by email, and I am grateful to them for that. I can only report what I would consider both sides of this issue as having been told to me, and let you, the listener, consider both. What I mean when I say both sides is that I have spoken with sources who I feel are very supportive of John Munden, and through their interviews, they have seemed to me perhaps a bit defensive on his behalf. The other side in this case would be the Lindner family, who said something. Jarringly different about the relationships that Gene Lindner had with both John Munden and Steve Snediger. The very first thing a source close to the Lindner family said to me in our initial conversation was this I guess probably your first question is whether Gene Lindner knew Steve Snediger. The answer to that is yes. I can't tell you 100% for sure when they first met, but I can tell you that John Munden brought him, meaning Steve to the Cranberry Estate's house a few times. John and Jean obviously did know each other before he was murdered. Okay, so that jumped right the hell off the page at me because I had been under the impression, or rather the assumption, that Hancock County Sheriff's Deputy John Munden had never met Steve Snedeker or any of the Snedegers prior to rolling up on that house on Shadeland Drive the day Trudy Snedeker reported her daughter missing. But that's not the story that Lindner family sources are telling me. I was told that not only did Steve Snedeker know Jean Lindner, and had been to the Cranberry State's home, but he had been brought there by John Munden. Now, first off, let's be clear: that did happen. We know it happened after Jean Lindner died. John Munden marries Nieves Munden, and there were apparently times, which nobody disputes, where he brought Steve Snedeker to his house. Now, I can't fathom, personally, why a sheriff's deputy would be bringing the subject of an investigation to his home. By a month and a half at the latest, after Laura Morris went missing, John Munden was well aware that Tony McCullough had disappeared and that Steve Snediger asked John Munden, rather coyly, just afterward, what would happen to a body if it was tossed out of an airplane over the Gulf of Mexico? So let us all be very clear. John Munden probably should not have been bringing Steve Snedeker to his house for any reason whatsoever at any time. But right now we're talking specifically about the difference between bad judgment and a flat-out lie. Because John Munden told the Indiana State Police investigators during his debrief on the Laura Morris case that he had never met the Snedegers before Laura Morris went missing. Never heard of them, he said. So now... Let's get back to dissecting whether John Munden brought Steve Snedeker to the Cranberry Estates home before Gene Lindner died. Dave Scott believes the Lindner family has this timeline wrong. He believes that Steve Snedeker and John Munden had been there together only after Lindner was murdered.
1: To the best of my personal knowledge and anybody I ever talked to, um, John did not know Steve Snedeker before Laura's disappearance.
0: It seems like uh, that would come... And, and the thing that Danny pointed out, which I think is fair, is... So he would have to show up to this crime scene. Well, not crime scene at that point, but he's been called to the Gertrude's house. He'd have to be a pretty good actor to, to act like he's never met any of these people while he's standing there interviewing them, you know, like... Right? So I get your point. It. it I don't... I can only say what they're saying. And maybe... Remember, yeah. they were younger, so they're they're looking back uh-huh. on it for well, many years. You know? You know. And,
1: and, you know, if, if you... Uh, and and I have no reason to doubt you, if you say Lindner knew Steve, that's very possible. I have no information one way or the other on that. Now, is it Is it, is there a possibility? I mean, I've been to, I've been to people's houses for parties and stuff where there are all kinds of people and I, maybe I've met them and, but that doesn't mean two months later I remembered who they were. Exactly.
0: And and, something
1: like that have occurred yet. Yeah. Right. But to say that, that John was taking Steve up there,
0: I just don't buy that for a second. Okay. And that's why I wanted to talk to you because that was one thing that I just, it didn't, I didn't you know, Steve said he didn't. Yeah. I mean, um, John said he didn't. So, uh, yeah. you know, I, I wanted to kind of get your, and she did, by the way, because um, she did, Uh, they have parties there. They had pig roast. They had things going on, yeah. you know, yeah. so that would explain that. My cu- question was, because we've got a drug situation in that yeah. household, and there's Gossip about and some, you know, like you said, some stuff that we see in Snediger's life that looks like he might have been dealing with drugs. So did these two, these two lanes, uh, you know, merge at one point, or is that just a coincidence?
1: Well, and I, I can't answer that for you. Yeah. Um. If if it did, it never came to light, as far as I know.
0: Right. That's Uh, what I'm hearing. Right. Nothing. You
1: know. Um. but you know, it wouldn't it wouldn't really surprise me that that you could have, uh, for example, Linder and Snediger both being businessmen in a small community like Greenfield that they would not necessarily have known each other. That doesn't surprise me that they right. knew each other. Yep. Um, you know, um, but making a connection to Steve other than through a common friend, maybe at a party or something like that, um, I. I, I have no reason whatsoever to believe that, that they knew each other prior.
0: Danny Chalice, Laura's brother-in-law, also spent a good deal of time working with John Munden, giving him information on the family, and he, too, did not believe Steve Snedeker had known John before Laura Morris was killed. I do know
2: that John knew Gene Linder before Gene Lender got killed. It's the Steve part and the... Three of them knowing each other—that's the problem I got. Because look, I'm gonna be honest. When when Linder got killed, my very first thought was that was Steve Stevier because you know it is correct that that was right after Lambert disappeared and the police were questioning him about Lambert. So, and I always thought my first thought was, well, Steve Stevier killed that man just so it, it it filled their plate up and they wouldn't be able to. Do anything proper. Whether that's the case or not, I don't know. That's pure speculation. Because listen, before before uh, Moore disappeared, John London was never a name that was mentioned. He was never around. John London knew nothing about the this Is the way it seemed to be. and I, I don't have any reason in my mind to doubt that. And that that's what my gut feeling is. And I hope my gut feeling turns hands out because if it do not then I've been I want to say it like it's for a third time now. That creates, in my mind, a
0: real serious problem. Yeah. Man, I'd hate to see it
2: really run that deep. How do you pull that off? How do you fake go into that house and act like you never met anybody there and go to investigate their daughter's disappearance?
0: I totally get what you're saying now, but that's not necessarily the case. Steve could have known him and not Trudy. They could have met casually, you know, at one of these Lindner events and not really had any contact. See, the reason why I had to be very specific about um, Munden knowing Snediger beforehand is because of that pile of cash that he brought and put on his desk like two days after Laura's murder. That looks much more nefarious if they know each other. Right. That's more well, of a bribe.
2: It was after her murder. It was at least after her disappearance.
0: Right. But you see how the impropriety would be much different if they knew each other and he was handing him that yes. money. You know oh, what I mean? I,
2: I get that right. And that's I why uh-huh.
0: I needed to check it because.
2: Right. And I, and I really still feel truly in my heart the task that he took in and put on London's desk. I believe it was $10,000. That was for surveillance. For everybody that John thought might, you know, put on extra deputies, is
0: what that was for. I'm interested to see when we look when we get the documents from Hancock County if that's mentioned in the report. How if there was any accounting done with it? What is, there, would have, there would have certainly have to have been accounting for. It. Yeah, I would hope, but it doesn't look good. You know what I mean? You're someone that uh, ends up that. being a target of the investigation, handed you a, a, a you know a, a pile of money that doesn't look good through other people. Nievis Lindner herself said this. She confirmed multiple times that Steve was at the Lindner home prior to Jean having been killed, and John Mundin had brought him there prior to Jean being killed. She said it was at a time when Dave Scott was not yet friendly with the family, so he wouldn't have known about that time period. Dave Scott would, however, later become a good friend of the Lindner family. And they have no doubt that his defense of John Mundin on this point was due to him believing that john had never brought steve there but not knowing it to be a fact the linder sources said john munden had aspirations of running for sheriff and that's corroborated in the news articles of the time even according to his boss nick gulling his socializing with local businessmen would have likely been an effort toward that end to garner future support to be fair i want to say that i am working with the memories of an 80 something woman who let's be clear went to federal prison for her part in selling drugs out of her home. And she could certainly have motives of her own for wanting to associate Steve Snedeker, someone who also may have had some drug associations with being at her home and perhaps even related to her husband's death. Her ex-husband's case was never solved. There has never been an arrest. And according to newspaper reports, family and associates of Jeans pointed directly at her at the time. One story I heard did make me wonder, though. Prior to Jean's death, Steve Snedeker was at the Cranberry State's home and he made this comment. If you weren't happy here, you'd never be happy anywhere. Those who heard the comment weren't sure how to take it. Was Steve just commenting on the beautiful home and the setting? Was he commenting on Nieves herself? Or could he have known about the prior suicide call and domestic issues? And if that's the case, how would he have found that out? It's certainly something that he could have learned from John Munden. My sources within the Lindner family were not sure how much Gene Lindner knew about Steve Snedeker's business, but I was told that Gene was the type who would make it his business to find out what he needed to know. So, quote, I'm sure he knew quite a bit about Steve. I think we've all heard the rumors that Steve was running drugs because he had an airplane, another source said. I hope I've laid out that point fairly for both sides, and I will leave it to you guys to decide what you think. I didn't feel comfortable leaving it out of my reporting, but I also recognize that it's important to note when I have no proof to support something I have been told by a source. In this case, I had separate sources that were saying vastly different things, and what I believed to be enough muddy water in my own thinking that I felt I should include it. I am still undecided on whether John Munden brought Steve Snedeker to the Lindner home on occasions before Gene Lindner was killed, or whether the case was related and what the relationship between those men was. I do believe that there are questions that deserve honest investigation. Regardless of all of that, the summer of 1988 was a bad summer for John Munden. Lots of legal stuff going on, in addition to a wife now headed off to prison. I learned that he became the legal guardian of Nievas' two children and continued to live at the Cranberry Estates' home with them, which I think says something about the man, given that they had been estranged and in the process of their second divorce at the time. Nievis Munden was sentenced to five years but ended up doing around three years in prison, so either the feds didn't think she was the mastermind behind the drug trafficking or they didn't have enough evidence to pin it on her. Her brother, however, died in prison. He ended up getting the lion's share of the time. It sounds to me like John Munden was in love with Nieves. He kept her kids safe while she was in prison. The two were together total about 18 years on and off, and they were described to me as complete opposites who could not live together but even after the divorce remained friends and worked together. As for his job with the Hancock County Sheriff's Department, John Munden had resigned as chief deputy during that summer of swirling controversy. But on February 14, 1989, he officially resigned altogether after his wife's conviction. He said the unfounded allegations made it impossible for him to do his job. It's ironic that Munden would leave the job that he loved on Valentine's Day because of his relationship with the woman he loved. A source close to the Lindner family told me this. That's all John ever wanted to be, was a police officer.
1: If there was any mistake, in my view, if there was any mistake made in this investigation, it was initially assuming that the family was telling you the truth and that they were victims of this abduction. Because by the time they started to piece together that none of the shit they were telling them was true, Mm. quite a bit of time had gone past you know and yes. a lot of a lot of things were it's like oh well shit I sure wish I could go back now and ask these questions about things I know now I wish I could have asked them that day
0: that actually goes to Munden as far as s- suggesting that he didn't know Steve beforehand because if he knew him he would maybe may if he knew him you know anything yeah. about him at all he wouldn't yeah. be trusting him at no. all you know he no. wouldn't have I, I don't
1: know anybody that as as i've talked to other folks um uh, you know as part of as the investigation went on and you uh and i went i went with john a number of times to talk to different people and you know i don't know anybody that that said they knew him that didn't think he was a very at least a very odd duck
0: oh yeah. you know yeah
1: um if not shady, or yeah, I don't know, I don't trust that guy. You know, or yeah, he's he's really screwed. Yeah, I don't, I don't know anybody that said, "Oh, yes, Steve, what a great guy."
0: Trudy, either neither one of them, no, neither well, huh? except for aside from their grandkids, who both love Trudy very much, or all sure. love Trudy. There, nobody says anything good about any of them in the whole family. Really, none of them. Yeah, almost. Yeah,
1: they were they were just about as dysfunctional, I think, as you could get uh, from from. Almost any perspective you want to look at it, I mean the way they the way they treated Laura was pretty well documented from from eyewitnesses, you know, yeah, uh, which was just tragic. and no wonder she didn't want to go down there with them
0: and then you know the sad a couple of two of the sad things that that hit me here is that Laura. She had two bad choices. She'd go back with Bryce, and that relationship wasn't going anywhere. She could stay yep. with her parents. She didn't even have a job because they had left her. She kind of was in a bad spot at that moment sure. in her life. You know? Sure. The other sure. thing, the other tragedy in this, to me, um, has to do with John Munden, and that is that he, I think he probably loved Nieves, yet the one thing he really loved to do was be a cop, and he lost yep. that because of her. Yep. You know, that whole, that's yep. basically what happened. So there's yep. a... You that know. is what
1: happened. Yeah, and and you know, even though you know they eventually, you know, got back on speaking terms, and you know, and and worked some together and some other capacities and things. Um, yeah, it, it just um, he knew he knew that that um, yeah. He let's get this way. I never heard him. I never heard him say. Or infer that Nevis didn't do what she was accused of. I, I never heard him say, "Well, she didn't do that, or she was wrongly convicted, or wrongly accused." Or, I never heard him say that one time. But despite that, he he remained throughout the whole thing relatively supportive. Yeah, I mean, he would go. He would take the. Uh, uh, there was a train that used to run over to the prison in West Virginia, where he was where she was incarcerated and he'd make that trip several times a year
0: yeah danny uh, said he, he drove with him sometimes too to go yeah, visit yeah, her
1: just to go down just to go down and and say hi and i mean he he was fairly loyal and john was a loyal type guy
0: well he not, took care of her kids after she went to prison yeah, i mean yeah I, that says not, a lot to me about yeah, who he not, was
1: not to the point of being willing to break the law but yeah. to the point of you know we as as the church saying goes, you can you can hate the sin and love the sinner, you yeah, know. Yeah. Um, that's and John was that uh, John was loyal to her, um, and I think that probably too created a lot of hard feelings among the guys on the department. Uh, he he never said she he never said she didn't do it. Never said she didn't deserve to go to prison. You know, never said she wasn't guilty. He kind of stood by her.
0: Well, he loved her, probably. He considered. probably loved. I mean, you know, I yeah, I've dug out, so.
1: And know. I suspect couldn't believe it when he heard what was going on. You know. You know, what it, yeah. when She was
0: arrested. I I was reading one of the articles the other night, and it said that um, from the scene when they when they arrested when she was getting arrested, the kids called John to come yeah. there, be, and I thought, wow, that's kind of heartbreaking. You know, like. Yeah they're calling him to, to come they, their parent is get, their only live, living parent is getting hauled off and sure. they're and they're calling John and imagine that night in his mind I really honestly wish I could have talked to John Munden you know yeah. about this case but yeah, John, you were the you know you were the next best thing so
1: the sad part is you didn't get to talk to John because I'll tell you what he was a walking encyclopedia of this case there he there was nothing he couldn't remember yeah. and uh, he kept I don't know whatever became of him but he kept copious notes on stuff he had audio tapes of interviews with people he had I mean John was just he was obsessed with trying to solve this case he used to have a saying uh, that was that he heard someplace it was on his on his wall I'm trying to think of it to say that a crime is a mystery and cannot be solved is to admit incapability hmm and that that hung in his office um, forever, as long as he was on the sheriff's department.
0: After she got out of prison, Nievis sold the Lindner family business and allowed John to open a machine shop with some of the proceeds. That's what John Munden did for the next 20 years. He ran a machine shop that was started from funds that Nievis made from selling her own business. They certainly seemed to have something that looks a lot like love to me, they worked together for years in the same office. He was there for her when she needed him with her children because they were minors when she went to prison. When she came home, they bought a house and tried to start over, but it just didn't work. I'm told that when John Munden got sick, Nieves was there to help care for him. John Munden died in 2018 at the age of 71. This part of the story left me wondering about Munden and whether he knew about Nieves' role and the sale of drugs. The DEA said they'd been monitoring her and her brother for about three years, and Munden was certainly part of her life during that time. The Fed documents mention about 30 drug buys at that Cranberry Estate's home while Munden was there. Sources that I spoke with were hesitant to believe that John Munden knew about the drugs. But they also wondered this. What kind of a detective are you if you don't know what's happening right under your nose. I have to agree with that sentiment, but I'm also not left with the sense that John Munden was a bad man. In fact, the opposite. I think he was a good man, or certainly trying to be. I think too often the urge is to put humans in a box. They're good or they're bad. And the fact is, none of us are either. All of us are both. But I also know how close that John Mundin got to Steve Snedeker, and how he made mistakes investigating that case. Importantly, sources close to the Lindner family recall conversations with Steve and John where they were discussing Trudy and how John Mundin believed that she had killed her own daughter that source remembers being very concerned about John Munden expressing those thoughts to Steve Snedeker and feeling very uncomfortable about it. If this is true, was it something John Munden said to Steve Snedeker that led him to kill his own wife? I don't think we will ever have the answer to that one, but my concern is that John Munden got it wrong. With a case described to me as one he could never put away, what if he was wrong? What if Trudy Snedeker got killed because John Munden got it wrong? I think when you run out of puzzle pieces that fit, you start trying to make things fit. I feel like that was the case with John. I heard that from a source even before I received documents and information that made me doubt John Munden's theory of Laura Morris' murder. So when I reread it in my notes, It surprised me in the way that confirmation of something that's been niggling at you often does. For what it's worth, Nieves Munden, she didn't believe it either. You're wrong. She didn't do it, Nieves had told John. Part of me wonders if, like me, as a mom herself, she just can't fathom the idea of killing your own child. Well after he resigned his job, John Munden continued to work with investigators on Laura Morris' case. Indiana State Police and officials in Florida mined the vast knowledge of details that he had collected over the years as they continued to track down leads. With all the time that was invested in this case, I feel like there should have been a very different outcome. But it seems like the bodies just kept piling up. My source said, I don't feel like Trudy or Steve killed their daughter. However, that's not to say they didn't harm other people. I was beginning to consider the exact same thing. Stay tuned.
2: When you try to love, it's like you die a little. But not in a way that's selfish and vain, but that's sacrificial. That's reciprocal and mystical and visceral You get what I'm getting at? I wanna love continuously and not so strenuously How can I love one love when there's so many people loving back? So many ways I could react So many days I think I should in fact become bohemian like Liszt Or James Brown Or Nikola Tesla Or anyone else that one should aim to be in this day and age